welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Since Easter, we've been doing a series, Easter through Pentecost Sunday, which was last Sunday. We've been doing a series on the person and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Next week, Daniel Brown is with us, and it seemed fitting that rather than embark on something new, we would um, continue that series just one more week. And so I I want to wind that series up this evening by talking about um, being a friend of the Holy Spirit. I I started the series by really talking about uh, cultivating a friendship with the Holy Spirit, being a friend of God, and, and so I'm going to talk practically about what that might look like in terms of uh, us walking it out. So I want to start by reading some scriptures from uh, John's Gospel. I'm reading in the Message Translation, and the first passage I want to read is John chapter 15, verses 12 through 15, where Jesus says to his disciples, this is my command, love one another the way I loved you. This is the very best way to love. Put your life on the line for your friends. You are my friends when you do the things I command you. I am no longer calling you servants because servants don't understand what their master is thinking and planning. No, I've named you friends because I've let you in on everything that I've heard from the Father. This very first passage that we're reading contains the crucial element of what constitutes true friendship and it concerns or surrounds the issue of the level of intimate disclosure that takes place. Jesus says in this passage that a slave doesn't know what his master is doing. The J.B. Phillips translation says the slave doesn't share in his master's confidence. You know, if we were to bring that into the modern day kind of setting, we might change the word slave and put the word employee. Normally, a modern day employee wouldn't share the intimate disclosures of his employer. He gets information on a need-to-know basis. Very rarely would an employee, at least in a large company, be privy to the dreams, the desires, the ambitions, or perhaps the fear or fears of his employer. The relationship is a functional one, but not one of deep, intimate friendship and disclosure. So that's one of the key distinctions between what, what would be a casual or a functional relationship compared with an intimate friendship on the other hand. It has to do with the amount and type of information that is disclosed. The employee wouldn't generally share his employer's confidence. Friends speak confidentially. They tell and they keep secrets. One of the men who's described as a friend of God in the Scripture is Abraham. Three times in the Scripture, twice in the Old Testament, once in the New Testament, Abraham is described as a friend of God. And one of the characteristics of the friendly relationship that God and Abraham shared was that God invited Abraham into his confidence. There's a story in Genesis chapter 18, uh, it's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and three men come down to visit Abraham. Obviously, uh, th- this is a theophany. It's uh, an appearance of God in the flesh. And they talk for a while, and then they start to move off towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And then within this divine community, this conversation takes place. God says, shall I keep back from Abraham what I'm about to do? It's as if God couldn't not tell his friend what was about to transpire with Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And, and so he discloses and shares what's about to happen. If you read the message translation, it's fascinating the way Abraham responds in chapter 18 of Genesis and verse 23. Abraham, it says, confronted him. Are you serious? Are you planning to get rid of the good people right along with the bad people? Only friends can talk like that to one another. Are you, are you serious? He's able to push back because of the level of trust and faith that exists between these two people. He knows that he won't be misunderstood and rejected. When, when a friend tells you that he's about to embark on some course of action that you think is mistaken or perhaps misguided, you can say to that friend, are you serious? And you know that you won't be rejected. If a stranger tells you something that you think is misguided, you probably will say, well, you know, tell somebody who cares. Or on the other hand, you probably like to say, well, best of luck. But you aren't going to push back. That requires a degree of friendship. And Abraham shares that friendship with God. And there's this intimate disclosure of information, the pushback that a friend can engage in. Jesus had been this kind of friend to his disciples. He had openly and intimately disclosed to them. Mind you, they didn't always understand the level of disclosure. But he's about to depart from them. And in the passage in John, he says, a friend is coming. And so he opens up the possibility of this ongoing, continuous friendship between disciples and their Lord. It's as if he's saying, he will be a friend to you in the same way that I've been a friend to you. In John chapter 14 and verse 15, it says, if you love me, show, show it by doing what I've told you. I will talk to the Father and he'll provide you, another friend, so that you'll always have someone with you. This friend is the spirit of truth. The godless world can't take him, can't take him in because it doesn't have eyes to see him, doesn't know what to look for. But you know him already because he has been staying with you and will even be in you. You know, we, we used to have a saying many years ago, I haven't heard it so much these days, I don't know whether it's still current, but we would have a saying for a friendship that was developing between a young man and a young lady, and we would say something to the effect that they have eyes for one another. They have eyes for one another. The world, Jesus says, doesn't have an eye for the Holy Spirit. They are not looking for him. They are not interested in him. But the implication clearly is that we as disciples do have an eye for him. There is a tender affection toward him, and we have an eye to the Holy Spirit. Have you ever noticed that people who have been friends for a long time and spent considerable amount of time in one another's company actually have the ability to have a conversation with their eyes? Not a word transpires between them, but, but they know what each other is thinking. Husband and wife, of course. The longer they've been married, you realize there's the possibility of having a conversation with your eyes. Sometimes the conversation goes like this. Don't you dare say anything. And the husband or wife responds, I wasn't even thinking about saying anything. Good, because if you do, you're dead. Get off my case. I wasn't even thinking about saying something. Just as well. And not a word has been spoken. The eyes have it. The eyes say it all. We're supposed to have an eye to the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, verses 
uh, 25 through 26. I'm telling you these things, Jesus said, while I'm still living with you. The friend, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send at my request, will make everything plain to you. He will remind you of all of the things I've told you. So here, Jesus says, the friend, the Holy Spirit, will do what a true friend does. He will reveal, he will disclose, he will remind in John 15, 26, it says, When the friend I plan to send to you from the Father comes, the Spirit of truth issuing from the Father, he will confirm everything about me. One translation says he will bear witness. It's another way of saying he will confirm, he will affirm the things that Jesus has said. And then in John 16, verses 12 through 13, I still have many things to tell you, Jesus says, but you can't handle them now. But when the when the friend, the spirit of truth comes, he will take you by the hand and guide you into all truth there is. He won't draw attention to himself, but he will make sense out of what is about to happen and indeed out of all that I have done and said. This friend will reveal and he will explain. One of the key aspects of the Holy's friendship with us, of the Holy Spirit's friendship with you, is that he reveals, he leads any guides. Paul talks about this on a couple of occasions in Romans chapter 8 and Galatians chapter 5. He said, the sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read scriptures like that, you know, that the sons of God are led by the Spirit of God, I want to know what, the, what, what does that look like? How is it that this friend is going to reveal, to remind, to affirm? How does he do that in practical terms? What does it look like to be led by the Spirit of God, by this friend? Now, some of you might be thinking, you know what? I'm, I'm actually afraid of that. I'm not even sure that I want him to lead me that way. And it's not that you are stubbornly resistant, although I guess that could possibly be true of some. Often it happens because you have met people along your journey that claimed to be led by the Spirit. And the reality is the things that they did and said were weird. And you've decided, I don't want to be like that. If that's what it means to be led by the Spirit, I'll give it a miss. But can I let you into a secret? These people were weird before they were ever Christians, okay? These people weren't made weird by the Holy Spirit. He, he got them weird, and he's trying to work that weirdness out of them. And, and I just want to tell you that, you know, being weird isn't the way you get led by the Spirit, Having said that, I've got to say that um, what I'm not saying there is that God never will do anything that will, uh, you know, make you uncomfortable or not be uh, completely understood by you. The, the reality is that he does lead in ways that aren't always easy to understand. But there is a world of difference between God's ways, which can be mysterious at times, and spiritual and religious weirdness. You, you can tell them apart. They are not the same thing. Now, for some people, the idea of being led by the Spirit isn't that uh, exciting because they can't imagine wanting to have some kind of heavenly big brother looking over their shoulder, dictating their every movement. And again, you know, this idea of if that's what it, it means to be led by the Spirit, I'm not sure that I want it. Well, you know, me neither, to be truthful. I don't think that God is in the business of either making people weird on one hand or making them into obedient little marionettes on the other hand. 
My deep conviction is that God guides us and leads us in a relationship that ultimately is intended to develop autonomous, emotionally healthy characters, capable of making good and right decisions for themselves. Isn't that what every parent wants? I mean, if you were a parent, would you want the kind of children that you have to tell all of their lives, wear these clothes, eat this food, take these classes, go to this university, apply for this job, marry that person, and have them do exactly what you prescribe all of your lives? The answer appropriate, the appropriate answer is no there, okay? Just, just in case as a parent you're wondering and, and not quite sure, the appropriate answer is no. Others of you are thinking, oh, um, that describes my parents actually. I want to not be unkind, but say you need counseling, okay? Some of you are thinking, but that is my parenting style. Your children will need counseling. Our goal for our children isn't some kind of robotic, codependent obedience. We want them to be emotionally healthy adults. And at least in my experience, and maybe that's not normative, I don't know, but there are lots of times when I've been looking for God's leading, I've been praying about a set of circumstances, and he simply seems to say to me, Don, you decide. You decide. I've promised I will always be with you. It's your call. And he doesn't do that to frustrate me, but he does it because decision-making is an indispensable part of character formation. And God is in the business primarily of character formation and not simply circumstance shaping. He wants good, healthy people. And decision-making is part of what it means to be healthy. So there are times when he says, you decide. You're growing up. Now, there are other times in my experience where he has been quite directive and he really has led and guided and revealed and reminded in rather unusual ways sometimes. But more often than not, he just says, Don, you're a big boy. It's your call. I promised I'll be with you. Now, it's okay. If he does lead, if he does guide, when he does, how does he do it? What means does he use to reveal, remind, bear witness? What, how, how as a friend does he do these things? Number one, he does it through the scriptures. This is the first and foremost manner in which he leads and guides us. And I want to just say to you, the scriptures are the, are the norm for all other God's speech. But by that I mean you weigh everything you hear or think you hear through the grid and the matrix of the scriptures. Historically, the scriptures have had that special irreplaceable role of being the standard of faith, the rule of conduct, the final court of appeal for all that we believe is guidance. Listen, no matter how people think or feel the Spirit of God is leading them, if it doesn't line up with the principles of the scriptures, then I'm, I'm bold enough to simply say it's not God. I'm sorry, but it's not God. The Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures, and he's not going to contradict himself by saying something completely different through personal prophecy, through dreams, through visions, or through so-called open doors. When I said a moment ago that sometimes God leads by saying, you decide, he does so with the expectation that the decisions we make will be informed by and grounded in the scriptures. Now, 
imagine, and, and the reality is this happens on occasion, so you don't have to imagine too hard. You imagine saying, somebody saying something like this, Lord, I'm thinking of having an illicit relationship with somebody who's not my spouse. What do you think about that? Now, I hasten to, uh, to add, they never, ever uh, frame the question in the way that I just did. They are usually much more self-deceptive. This relationship is so special. Lord, I think you've brought it my way. Shades of Eden where we say, you know, the woman thou gavest me. I'm in this situation. I think you've arranged it. Um, it feels different. I think it's unique. Maybe it's an exception to the rule. And we start going down a pathway that clearly is a violation of what God has spoken. And I want to just say to you, in such a situation, you decide is off the table. Listen, if you were to ask God a question like that, framed however you frame it, I, I suspect the answer would be absolute silence. God has already answered that question. He's already made that clear. He is not compelled to repeat it. I know people who have prayed something to the effect that, Lord, if you don't want me to proceed, close the door. Lo and behold, the door did not close. It remained open. They took that as an approval for their course of action. I think the truth of the matter is that people that ask questions like that actually aren't even looking for answers. They're looking for loopholes. They've already decided what it is that they're going to do. They have already ignored the normative, clear words of the Scriptures. To ignore the Scriptures that are unambiguously clear and then to seek God's guidance on an issue is at best to toy with or at worst, to invite deception. In Ezekiel chapter 14, there's a story of a group of men who come before the Lord seeking guidance. They come to the prophet for a word. It's interesting, but they've already made up their minds what they want. And it says in Ezekiel 14 verse 3, Son of man, these men have taken idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. And God says, should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? They've already, they've already decided. They've already set up their idols. They've set their iniquity before their face. They're looking for me to rubber stamp the action that they've decided on. Should I be consulted of them? And uh, in verse 4 it says, therefore speak to them. And say to them, thus saith the Lord God, any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets up stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols. You say, well, Don, what does that mean? Well, let me kind of paraphrase what I think that's saying. They will get an answer that confirms the direction they have determined to go. They will think it's from me, and I will allow them to think that, but it is not from me. What they are hearing is the echoes of their own idolatry. They have determined something. They have sought my rubber stamp. They will not get it. They will get a stamp that will allow them to go in their own direction, but it won't be from me. Classic illustration of this, by the way, is the prophet Balaam. It's an unusual story. It's found in Numbers chapter 22 through 24. A Moabite king comes to Balaam and says, look, I'll pay you a lot of money if you'll come and curse the children of Israel. Jude 11, the New Testament, talks about this and says that Balaam was motivated by gain. He, 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 he offered a lot of money. He is really interested. So he goes before God and says, can I do it? Can I, can I, can I, can I, can I go? 
And God says, no. Next minute, they're having this conversation again, and God says, all right, you go. Uh, and I, I've often wondered about that. I thought, well, how come God changed his mind? I actually think, and, and I think Jude 11 throws a bit of light on it, that Balaam wasn't satisfied with the answer, no. He wanted the money, and so he goes back and starts to try and maneuver to get God to change his mind. You go back with that idolatry before uh, set up in your heart and with that iniquity before your face, you can hear what you want to hear. And so he hears, okay, go. On the way, by the way, God tries to kill him. And had it not been for his donkey, you know, the famous story of the talking donkey, uh, he would have been killed. All the way through that story, because it goes on, Finally, God says, you, you, all right, you go, but you make, I'm, you make sure you say exactly what I want you to say. So he goes, and instead of cursing Israel, he blesses them. The king says, what do you think you're doing? I'm paying you money to curse them. You're blessing them. Balaam says, well, I can only say what God tells me to say, but, but maybe if we go to another place, another location, another sacrifice. And so they go around several places, and every time God just says, no, you can't. But if you read on in that story, Balaam finds a way. And the way actually is to get the Moabite woman to go down, be seductive among the men, draw them into idolatry, the wrath of God will fall on them. That was Balaam's counsel. This man wanted what he wanted, and ultimately God allowed him to do what he wanted. And if you read the story, he comes to a very, very sticky end. If we want to be a people led by the Spirit, truly we need to be a people in the book. We need to be the people of the book. You do what the normative scripture says. People worry me who are out on the fringe looking for supernatural guidance when they don't even read the Word of God, or they read it rarely or superficially. If you want to be out on the edge in, super, in, in supernatural guidance, you better have good connections with the Word of God, or you've got no way of knowing whether that is God or not. The fact that it's supernatural tells you absolutely nothing about its source. You be rooted in the word of God. Another way that God leads you is through the inward teacher. Um, the word intuition is a word that we all know. You know, we, we talk about sort of, oh, it's just a sense, an intuitive sense. The word intuition comes from two words, inward tutor. And the Holy Spirit is that inward tutor. He's the teacher who comes to reside within us and he does lead us through internal promptings. Now, I, I know that's very subjective and that scares some people. And as I said, in this realm, also you need to be grounded in and informed by the word of God, but don't be frightened of it. It is a voice that we learn to discern. And God has always led his people through that intuitive sense. You can go back into the old covenant and, and in Psalm 20, 32, for example, he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you could go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Don't be like the horse and the mule, which have no understanding and have to, be, um, ha have, to have a bit or a bridle in their mouth or they won't come near me. Even in the Old Testament, God is saying there will be this leading, my eyes with your eyes. We've got eyes for one another and we can have that kind of conversation. Now, sometimes that internal tuition will come through the promptings of thoughts. You, you've, if you've been around Gateway long, you've heard me quote my favorite author, Frederick Beekner, on this, where he says, thoughts that I didn't choose to think chose me to think them. And sometimes just thoughts will come and you begin to recognize 
I wasn't thinking that thought. Where did that come from? It's either the vagaries of an undisciplined mind, which it can be at times, or sometimes it can be the Lord just prompting you. So, well, Don, well, how will I know the difference? Well, you learn it the same way you learn any language. E. Stanley Jones gives a really good way of telling the difference. He says, perhaps a rough distinction is this. The voice of your subconscious argues with you, tries to convince you, but the inward voice of the spirit does not argue, does not try to convince you. It just speaks in itself authenticating. It has the feel of the voice of God within it. And, and that's been my experience. It's been something I've learned. Sometimes the internal promptings come not so much through words as they do through feelings. A few weeks ago, Joe Piet talked about the Ignatian tradition of feelings of consolation and feelings of disconsolation. Now, that's kind of ancient language, and we think, what does that meaning well, mean? Well, that, that, let's change it and say good feelings and bad feelings. You know, we walk into a situation, we say, oh, I've got a bad feeling about this. Walk into a situation, you say, oh, I smell a rat here. You know, there's, there's nothing here, but there's something here. And you can actually learn to hear the voice of God through that. It's, it's a process we all learn. But if you're serious about being a friend of God, then you start saying, Lord, teach me. One of the ways he teaches you, and Paul talks about it in, this, in Colossians, he says, the peace of God, the peace of God that passes all understanding, the peace of God in your heart will act as an umpire for you. Literally in the Greek word, it means he'll be an arbitrator. He'll be the referee. And when you are involved in some course of action, there are times when the Holy Spirit blows the whistle. And as the referee blows the whistle, you stop the play, you reset it, you go back because there's been an infringement. How many times have you, and, you know, you've been involved in a conversation and perhaps you sense the conversation is going in a direction that shouldn't go, and that if you don't bail out down the line, you're going to say something about somebody that you're going to regret, but you don't stop. And sure enough, you have to come back and say, oh man, I knew I should. You, you should have listened to that little internal monitor, the peace of God that starts to get a bit disturbed and says, don't go there, don't say that. It's not a wise course of action. We go down, you know. When the whistle blows, you stop and you reset. You go back. Part of what it means to be led by the Spirit is to listen to your prompted, enlightened conscience. I don't know how many times over the years people have said to me, Don, I, I, I never hear the voice of God. I, I've never heard the voice of God. And I sit with them and say, listen, you know what your conscience is. Has, has there been a time when your conscience has been violated and you've known, you've told a lie, you've stolen something, you've done something and you shouldn't have, and there's that nagging sense of fix it up, put it right, confess. That's the voice of God. The Bible talks about the witness of the Holy Spirit and the witness of your conscience joining ranks, closing ranks so that they become one and the same thing. So that Paul in Romans chapter 9 verse 1 can say, my conscience prompted and enlightened by the Holy Spirit bears witness with me. Listen, if you want to learn how to walk in the Holy Spirit, listen to that voice. Learn to walk in the power of what Ephesians 4.30 talks of, speaks of when it says, walk in the power of an ungrieved spirit. And when you sense you've grieved him by your words, by your actions, by the sharpness of your tongue, you back the truck back up and you put that right. You sort it out. That's what it means to be led by the Spirit. It's not some mystical, you know, trance-like. 
We've, we've all experienced those moments when we've said, done, or thought something, and the whistle has blown, the conscience has been alarmed, and, and you know, you now got a decision. What do you do with that? Do you ignore it, trample on it, and ultimately continue down that path, sear it so that it doesn't even speak to you anymore? Or do you back up and say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Lord. That's what it means to walk with the inward tutor. It's not that hard. It's not this mystical, esoteric sort of pathway that only a few initiated elite can walk in. It's open to every single person who wants the Holy Spirit as a friend. Sometimes we discover the leading of God in, in our community. This isn't always as dramatic as perhaps other ways that God might choose to lead us, but actually it's, it's frequent. I, I hear the voice of the Holy Spirit in my community, through my friends, through my mentors, or shock, horror, even maybe through my pastor. I, I actually think guidance was meant to be much more of a community process than we have allowed it to be. We're immersed in a culture that deifies and glorifies independence, and the thought of having our lives subject to or even influenced by other people is a horror to us. You know, you've you got to do your own thing, go your own journey. That fierce independence, by the way, is not the world of the Scriptures. Now, I, I readily conceive uh, con concede, rather, that the voice of, don't go there, <laughs> I readily concede that the, hearing the voice of God through your friends, remember Abraham's, are you serious? It, it's not always easy. It's not something I, I necessarily want to hear. But if you've got a true friend, he will sometimes front you up and he'll say, you know what, that course is ill-conceived. What you are doing is self-destructive. You, you shouldn't be doing that. You know, the Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. We all need the kind of friends that will put that friendship on the line and risk being rejected by you to say what needs to be said. None of us want to hear it, you know? Over the years when Karen said to me, do you know that when you did that, da-da-da-da-da-da, my first response is, is justification, excusing, rationalization. I don't, I don't want to hear that. But I know that she's a faithful friend to me, my best critic. And, and, and I, I've got to learn to listen. You, you learn to listen in community. Sometimes sparks fly, but they do when iron sharpens iron, as Proverbs says. And a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. You need to listen to your friend. We, in Pentecostal circles, you hear people talk about the anointing. I'm not even sure what it is sometimes, but we talk about it a lot. And what we really mean is the presence of the Holy Spirit coming and touching our lives, and we all covet the anointing. I want to tell you there's an anointing in Psalm 141 that I've rarely, if ever, heard talked about. And it says this, let the righteous man strike me. And the idea in the Hebrew is not just a a beating up. It's the striking of a blacksmith on the anvil. He's got purpose in mind, and he's hitting this thing and straightening it out and shaping something. It says, let the righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. It's an anointing. That's what oil and anointing, you know, that's what that's about. It's, it's, an, it's an anointing on my head. Let not my head refuse it. 
You know, when somebody criticizes you or speaks to you about something, your first response is, who do you think you are to tell me that? You know, talk about people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones, and, and our head refuses it. Our mind says, you're in no position to correct me, mate. This says, listen, if they're a good, faithful friend, if they're righteous and they're doing it out of the kindness of their heart, it's an anointing to you. We'd much rather have the other anointing, wouldn't we? You know, nice feelings, goosebumps riding piggyback on goosebumps. But we're not interested in this kind of anointing. But you can hear the voice of God, the leading of the friend in the community. Sometimes, you know, the leading of the friend actually isn't even apparent until after the event. If you read the story of Abraham's servant in Genesis 24, he didn't even know he was being led to Rebekah until afterwards when he looked back. Ruth didn't know she was being led to Boaz until afterwards when she looked back. Sometimes the friend will lead you along and you're not even aware he's present. But afterwards you look back and go, oh my goodness, my ways were superintended by my friend. The steps of a good man, the Bible says, are ordered by the Lord. Sometimes he can lead you with more dramatic ways, in dreams, in visions, with prophetic words. And as much as we all like those things to happen, and they do, I I actually think it's probably more normal to be led by the other things, by him saying, you decide, I will be with you. By him saying, be in the scriptures. By him saying, what's the internal feeling you have? By him saying, what does the community say? What's the voice of your friends as you are considering this course of action? He leads though. We've gotta be open to the friends' disclosures, however they come. You know, the reality is, and I'll say this in closing, the reality is a lot of people only look to the friend when they're in a jam, when they're in trouble, when there's a crisis. Oh God, oh God, oh help, help, help. If I was God, you know, and you you wanna be thankful I'm not, I tell you. You know, I'm thankful I'm not. Um, I would say, forget it. What kind of friendship is this that you only ring me when you're in trouble? What kind of friend rings you only when he wants money from you. You know, those friendships don't have a habit of lasting long for us because we know we're being used. But so many of us do exactly that with God. Can I suggest to you that if you want God's leading in a crisis, you be open to it and seek it in the continuous dimensions of your life. Ask him, ask him all the time, Lord, will you direct me? Will you direct, however you choose to. I don't mind if I don't see you, but I can look back and say you were there. Would you direct me? What you're doing is you are sowing responsiveness, and in those times of crisis, you reap responsiveness. There's a, there's a principle that I sometimes suggest to people, but to a people who are largely deaf to God, God becomes largely dumb. If you won't hear him speak, he won't. And in crisis, you suddenly go, oh, I need you to speak, I need you to speak. Well, you haven't needed me to speak up to this point. Now, I know God is unbelievably merciful, but there is a principle there. And listen to Proverbs chapter 1, verse 24 through 28. Because your ears were shut to my voice, no one gave attention to my outstretched hand. You were not controlled by my guiding and would have nothing to do with my sharp words. So, in the day of your trouble, I'll be laughing. I will make sport of your fear. When your fear comes on you like a storm and your trouble like a rushing wind, when the pain and sorrow come upon you, then I will give you no answer to their, I will give no answer to their cries. Searching for me early, they will not see me. 
I, I don't know about you, but I find that unbelievably sobering. I don't want to be in a situation where God actually just turns his back on me. And to ensure that that doesn't occur, I want to be open and available to whatever he wants to say to me. And when he says to me, Don, I'm not happy with this part of your life. When I feel that I've grieved the spirit and my conscience tells me so, or perhaps somebody has enough courage to come up to me, a friend, by the way, usually, and says, Don, do you know what you're doing here? I want to be the kind of person that actually has the capacity to, to listen, to weigh it up, to take it before the Lord, and to have him say, you know what, they're right. That person is right. Change it. And, and, and there have been times in my life and ministry where I've done exactly that. I, I covet the friendship of God. I covet it. I, I, um, you know, I know covet is normally a negative word, you know, in one of the Ten Commandments, it says don't covet your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's goods or all those sorts of things. But I think this is an, a coveting that probably has the stamp of God's approval. I, I covet his friendship. And I know that in order to walk in that friendship, it requires that I be continuously open to my friend, that I don't just call on him when I'm in a jam, but that I get up in the morning and I say, good morning, Holy Spirit, to quote Benny Hinn. Good morning, I'm here. I want your friendship today. Would you lead me in the activities of today? And then through the day, every now and then, I turn. Everything okay between you and me? Those of you who are married will understand this. Some of you will say, doesn't register. But every now and then, in my relationship with Karen, I see her getting a little quiet and sort of withdrawing, and I'm thinking, what have I done? Is there anything I've done? Now, sometimes, seriously, something will immediately come to mind. Other times, I'll have to go and say, we okay? Are we okay? And, and, you know, I can tell by her reaction whether we're okay or whether we're not okay. Sometimes she just can look with the eyes and go, oh, God, we're not okay. <laughs> uh, what? What? <laughs> now... Some of you are laughing because that's exactly the way it works in your relationship. Some of you are laughing and thinking, oh, I hope it's not like that in mine whenever it is, you know. But, but if you're married, that's how it works, you know. And you want to every now and then just check in with the Holy Spirit. Are we okay? Are we doing okay? Because I, I, I want to walk well with him. And I really, really hope you do too. And this series has been about that. It's been about cultivating the friendship of a person. An incredibly loving, gracious, merciful person we want to walk with. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.